ask everyone to stand. We're going to be reading the first verse of the book of Isaiah. concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Amen. That's right. You may be seated. I said to Richard just a few minutes ago, make sure you have a stand. It's the word of the Lord. And that is the one verse we're going to preach this morning. Before we do, just want to remind you that we are in the middle of an affirmation, elder affirmation process of Josiah Durham. And so if you weren't here last week, catch up with um, one of the elders this morning. And so just want to encourage you, find a blank piece of paper, sentence, two sentences, paragraph, fill up the page, whatever, whatever you would deem appropriate, or um, you, can, you can email me. So tmerwin5. All right, tmerwin5 at gmail. It's easy to remember. Um, please do that. Uh, you have last week and all of this week, and so don't delay. Um, we would like to have all those in by, by a week from today. Okay, and then also I just want to just mention, um, uh, the elders are working through this book, and we are providing reading assignments along the way, and a number of you... I say a number of you, I, I don't know, a handful, a, a good number um, are reading along with us. And so um, just kind of an assignment that we decided as a team we wanted to do. And then just as an extended to you, anybody who would like to, um, this book. And uh, just just grateful for those of you who, who feel, you know, maybe encouraged or even challenged right now to go through it. I'm grateful that you would do so. It can be intimidating, right, to look at a book this size and just, you know, how do you need an elephant, right? You eat it one bite at a time, all right? And so um, we're going to be doing that. We're not in a hurry, um, but we are going to keep pressing along, and so encourage you towards that. And I think it's not available on Amazon. It's like 27 bucks, which is actually quite a good deal for a book that size. So um, thank you for jumping in with us. Let's pause and pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to now preach your word. Lord, I'm praying, Lord, we pray together that as we walk through this series on Isaiah, that you would be at work in our heads, building convictions, Lord, that we might say at the conclusion of this series, I have bigger deeper rooted convictions about my God. Yes, Lord. Yes. And next, Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts, stirring our affections to be worshipers of you. Yes. And thirdly, Lord, I pray that you would be at work in our hands, that we would be active, living out our faith the things that we know to be true in our head and our heart, Lord, would show up in our daily lives. 
Lord, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. Pierce our hearts. Even as we look at this one little verse, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Isaiah is a big book, and he might concern you that as we launch into Isaiah, that we, yeah, we could be here a long time if we go one verse at a time. But this morning, we want to just pick apart this one verse, and there will be times where we move at a much faster clip. But this morning, as with all of our series, when we dig into a book, we want to kind of ask the question, why are we doing this book? Is this just like, hey, a neat thing, let's go to an Old Testament prophet? Is this just a fun, trendy thing for Trinity to do or what have you? And the answer is strongly no. There are specific reasons why we want to be in this book. And in particular, I think that we'd want to be in this book in this season, where we are as a church, where we are um, living in America in 2019. Did you know that Isaiah is the most often quoted book in the New Testament? The most often Old Testament book quoted in the New Testament is Isaiah. Did you know that if you want to have a better understanding of your New Testament, it would really serve you to understand this book, Isaiah. And thirdly, did you know that um, Isaiah is often thought of as the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah. The fifth gospel. Have you ever gone on vacation and you went to a place that just demanded that you take a tour? Uh, You found yourself in a city that's just so unique and so different and so new to you that you had to take the tour of the city. Kim and I found ourselves there um, this past summer. We found ourselves in York and Bath, England. And in both places, we took, we took walking tours. Actually, in Bath, we took two tours. Um, and we took, we took these tours. These, these walking tours were done by some folks that just were amazing. Like, these were the best tours. We've done a fair bit of touring. These were the best tours we had ever um, been on, I think, I believe. Is that true? You say that? Um, the uh, one, the lady in Bath and, and a man in York, they just knew their stuff. This was not a job to them. Actually, they didn't charge. It was a free walking tour, which makes you think, oh, it must not be very good. But not only would they not charge, they refused tips. Like, refused. It was offensive to try to tip them because that would um, demean their passion that they love to do free walking tours in their towns. Really quite amazing. Nothing quite like that in the States, is there? Um, and one of the things that just noticing in both of those towns is there is so much to see that a tour guide has to have priorities, right? There's only so much that you can see in an hour and a half walking tour. You can't see everything, even though there's, there, there's a lot of things that you're gonna have to miss. And so a good tour guide has priorities. Here's the high points. Here's the point. You know, this is a pretty high point, but we don't have time for it. So I'm just gonna point it out to you so that you can go back on your own time and go in there. 
and study that or pick up a book or what have you. Well, that's how I feel as we approach preaching Isaiah. In some regards, well, your preaching team is your tour guide. And the reality is it's a big book and we can't cover it all. But we're gonna, we're gonna hit on the high points. We're gonna show you the main attractions. We're gonna show you some sites that we need to see. And then we're gonna point you into some directions that we, we were gonna say, well, we just don't have time for that, but it's really worth your time on your own. And praise be to God, you have a Bible and we have resources and tools of which I just wanna point out this one. Um, this is uh, Ray Ortmund, uh, Ortland Jr., his commentary on Isaiah, and I hold it up and I point it out to you because um, you might want to pick up a good commentary, and this is very readable. This is not a technical commentary. It's very readable, and so you can just go along with us as we're covering, and then when you go, oh, wow, they're not going to show us that building, you can dig in and you can read about that building and see what's, what all is there. Some of the highlights on our tour is going to be, well, it's about God, Surprise, you're at Trinity. It's about God. Isaiah is about God. First and foremost, it's not about us. And so some of the highlights of the tour is gonna be that God is holy, right? We're gonna gonna work up to Isaiah chapter six. I cannot wait to get there. Isaiah chapter six, God is holy. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over nations. We're told in Isaiah 40, nations are like a drop in the bucket in the economy of God. Uh, in Isaiah, God is redeeming. He's redeeming his people. He is, he is the faithful God who keeps a remnant of people for himself who will worship him. He is the promised Messiah in Isaiah. He is the king of kings in Isaiah. He's the anointed victorious king. He is the king that is to come in Isaiah, and the spirit of the Lord is a theme in Isaiah. In other words, we could say that Isaiah is a very spirit-filled book. Those are some of the highlights. Let's dig in. I'm gonna just ask a bunch of questions, five questions this morning. The first one is what? What is the book of Isaiah? Verse one, the vision of Isaiah. That's what it is. It is the vision of Isaiah, God speaking to his prophet. So that's what a prophet would do. God would speak to the man of God and he would then bring that message to God's people. And that's the vision of Isaiah. And I wanna say to you this morning that it's in the kindness of God that he did so. It's in the kindness of God that God spoke to a man. There was a real man, a breathing man who lived in Jerusalem and his name was Isaiah and God gave him a vision and he recorded it. And I'm telling you that it's in the mercy of God that he did so for the benefit of his people then and for the benefit of his people now. Thousands of years ago, it's in the kindness of God that he raised up Isaiah and Isaiah recorded what the Lord would have him to record. Think about it like this. You're here this morning worshiping God. What is today? September 22nd, 2019. Because God raised up a man 
thousands of years ago to preach to God's people a message of repentance. And in the faithfulness of God, God kept that remnant of people. And because of that remnant of people, wow, you could track through the timeline of history. You're here. The kindness of God. Isaiah is about God. It is by God. And it is for God's glory. The vision of Isaiah is an appeal. It's a merciful appeal from God. It is a faithful appeal from God to rebellious man. It is a faithful appeal to unfaithful men and women. It is a faithful, merciful appeal to those who know God or know of God, but have turned from God to pursue false gods. And in the mercy and the faithfulness of God through the prophet Isaiah, it's an appeal to repentance and faith. That, that is a summary of what Isaiah is. And so it's no surprise if that's what Isaiah is. It's, a, it's an appeal for repentance. It's not a surprise that we're only 18 verses in. Didn't read it this morning, but we will now. And we'll preach it in a couple weeks. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet. Listen, he's not speaking to the world at this point. He's speaking to the church here. He's speaking to his people here. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so that's the what. Number two is the who. And I've got two parts on the who. So this is who part one. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. Now, in Jewish tradition, not scriptures, but in the Jewish tradition, we are told that Amos was noble, um, that he was the brother to Amaziah, the king, and so uh, king of Judah. And so that's Isaiah's dad, basically just painting a picture of Isaiah comes from noble birth. He's within the royal family. And maybe that's why you'll see as we progress through Isaiah, he has access to these kings. In 8 chapter 3, we're told that Isaiah is married and he has children. And more importantly than probably both those facts is, is Isaiah, his name, what it, what it means. Anybody know what it means? Is it, is it on the screen? Yeah. <laughs> Josiah is the quicker reader in the room. It means Yahweh is salvation. You know, what, you, know what, you know what that means? You know how we would say that today? We would say it like this, the Lord saves. In other words, like if you were to meet Isaiah on the streets of Jerusalem, my name is the Lord saves. It's incredible to consider this man's name. Because the very man's name comes with a pronouncement to unfaithful Israel. 
the very name of this guy, this prophet, this man that they want to run from actually speaks something of the activity of God and the character of God. The Lord saves. The Lord saves rebels. The Lord saves those who would turn away from him, the faithful God, and serve false gods who have nothing to offer them. God is faithful then just through the name of Isaiah himself to say the Lord saves. You see, a primary issue in the book of Isaiah is is idolatry. I submit to you a primary issue in our lives is idolatry. We might not create little gods, little idols, though if you drive around town and stop in at different places, you probably have seen some idols, some idols around town, some fruit by the idol and some incense that has burned there where worship has taken place, but that's probably not um, most of us in the room this morning, but rest assured, we create lots of idols. They are vast and many. We serve them. They can rule us. They can rule our actions. I like to even say sometimes we, well, not sometimes, we tithe to them. And we give of our money. We, we have expectations of our false gods. When our false gods don't deliver. Little short list of false gods this morning. The American dream. Live for the weekend. Greed. Lust. Jealousy. Children. Marriage. Our spouse. The desire for what could be. 401k. Drugs. Alcohol. The paycheck. Cooking, animals, decorating, fashion, sports, boats, cars, homes, technology, success, climbing the corporate ladder, the list is very long. That's the short list. And we create these false gods and we turn God's gifts to us into something more than that. We create them into something that we would actually turn and begin to worship or begin to serve or allow them to rule our hearts. And suddenly the gift becomes the object of our affections rather than the one who is the giver of such gifts. And suddenly the, the gift itself becomes the, the thing in which we treasure. And all the while we keep God, we keep God in our pocket, we keep a token of God because we know we need God. We still might pray to God, we probably do, but we just can't find that kind of time for him. Like we find the time for our other gods. We can't find that kind of, I mean, the Lord actually wants us to give something of what we make. We can't find, just don't have the spare money to give to him in that sort of way or the spare kind of time or the spare kind of energy like we can find in our false gods. You see, So J.I. Packer says this about the Lord saves Isaiah. This is so good. God saves sinners. God, the triune 
Jehovah, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of the Father and Son by renewing, saves, does everything, first to last, that is involved in bringing man from death in sin to life in glory, plans, achieves, and communicates redemption, calls and keeps, justifies, sanctifies, glorifies, sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, blind, unable to lift a finger to do God's will, or better, their spiritual lot. God saves sinners. Sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but salvation first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and future is of the Lord to whom be glory forever. Amen. God saves sinners. And here's a man in their day, and I'm making a case that this book is just as much for them in their day as it is for us in our day who comes with this pronouncement. The Lord saves. Pleased to meet you. So that's what God's announcing through the prophet Isaiah. And we need to hear in that the mercy of God. As he announces that to an idol-making, idol-crafting people, idol-pursuing, God-forgetting people. One more thing about Isaiah, we'll move on. People saw him coming and they ran in the other direction. People didn't like Isaiah. Let me say it this way. People didn't like the Lord saves. What are you saying by saying that? I want to draw your attention to that because people don't like the Lord saves today because what are you saying by that? Are you saying something is wrong with me? Are you saying that I'm a sinner? Or the most popular cultural way for us to hear in our day, don't judge me. You see, when you come announcing the Lord saves, something is being said about the person that's being said to. And that's being said to all of us this morning. People are still running from Isaiah, the Lord saves. Ray Ortland in this fine book says, their hearts were too dead to resonate with the greatest thing in the universe. And so it is today. Who, part two, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So in who part one, I'm talking about who wrote this book and who part two, we're talking about who did he write this to? And he wrote it to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, in saying that, I want you to know that it was written to the surrounding nations as well. And this is very important that, you, that we note this. But God brings his saving message first to his people. That's how the Lord operates. He brings his, the Lord saves to the people of God first and foremost 
And then the surrounding nations become beneficiaries to that saving, um, saving message. Let me put it this way. It was written to people then and people now first inside these four walls and then outside of these four walls. Nothing is more important to what is outside of these four walls. Nothing is more important to the surrounding world than the state of God's people inside these four walls. Put it like this. Are you concerned about the state of America? Look no further than the fall or the failure of the church. Are you wanting to see revival in our land? Look no further then. Pray for revival inside these four walls of the church. Obviously, I don't mean Trinity alone, but pray for revival to take place in the church. Because God always begins with his people the chosen people of God. And when he does his redeeming and sanctifying work in us, he then tells us to take his saving message, the Lord saves, to those around us. So one more quote from Mr. Ortland: The world cannot impede this expansion of salvation. The mediocrity of the church can and does. When the world, when the church has nothing more to offer the world than Christian entertainment or sermons that are just man's opinions or some guy telling jokes for 30 minutes to be relevant on a Sunday morning or if the church is simply offering to the world its version of wealth and prosperity if all we offer is some sort of Christianized worldliness, slightly sanctified, a cleaner worldliness with the same idolatry, that lacks saving power. Why in the world would the world look to the church as something attractive? I'm not saying entertainment's wrong. I'm not saying laughter on a Sunday morning is inappropriate. I'm not saying that in the slightest. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work to be relevant. Here's what I'm saying. None of that is water to a thirsty man. None of that is food to the hungry. None of that is hope to a lost and dying world. What the church of God, the people of God, bring to the party, if you will, is this. The Lord saves. The Lord saves. And when we start to think that our relevance is what saves, that our entertainment is what saves, we have lost our way in the woods. 
the saving message is the message of Jesus Christ. It's the Lord who saves. And this world needs a church that is undeniably saved. Unapologetically saved by Jesus Christ. We offer the lost person something more than just a little bit of a cleaner entertainment. We offer the world Jesus Christ saving message. We offer the world something more than our effort to be a little bit more relevant. Nothing is more relevant to a dying man than the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We offer them a savior for their sins. The Lord saves. So who, first and foremost, is this book, um, Isaiah, written to? It's written to the church. It's for us to sit up and listen to. It's a scathing message that comes through the book. And our response to that Throughout this series, I pray, is just repentance, repentance. Oh, God, revive us. Restore us. Number four, when and where. Isaiah kind of reads like Charles Dickens' book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Actually, um, I reviewed the uh, Bible Project videos. If you get the e-bulletin, you got those. I would encourage you, go listen Go watch those videos, it's so helpful. But I was, I was excited to see, I completely had forgotten, but um, re-watched that a few days ago and right in the middle they draw the tale of two cities. <laughs> like, yes, that's it, that's right. It's the best of times, it is the worst of times. Uzziah, it's the best of times. Um, Ahaz, it's the worst of times. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I'm going to unpack some of these. And so stick with me. We're going to history class for a minute. Okay? Hang with me in History 101, Old Testament Israel. Okay, so we're talking the book, chapters 1 through 39. Time frame, we're talking about 739 to 701 BC, roughly, okay? So we're talking 700 years prior to Christ. Um, these were the days of peace and prosperity. We could say these are the best of times. You know, we, we're rolling into chapter six in the year Uzziah died, right? Familiar with that? We'll get there, right? We'll get there. Um, Assyria is in, is in power. And the big theme, if you will, over these chapters is God is a holy king. And Isaiah grew up there, there in Jerusalem and Judea, if we've got the map. Okay, so we're talking, we're in the southern kingdom. So look, bottom half of the screen. Don't know if it's big enough. You got Jerusalem there, almost in the middle. You got Judah in, in, in big. It's the, it's the region of Judah, and Jerusalem is your capital. Isaiah grew up in Jerusalem. To the north, the northern kingdom, is Israel. You see that just below that word Israel. I don't know if you can read that. It's Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel at the time. 
Uzziah is king and his rule is one of peace and prosperity. It's the best of times. What does that mean? Well, when we roll into chapter six and the king dies. Well, when a good king, when a king of peace and prosperity is ruling, what happens? Well, the people grow stale, complacent. They grow in their, we don't really need God in our prosperity. I mean, we've got everything that we need. And, and so there's that. But then the king dies. What happens? The king who's brought you fear. I mean, sorry, answered my question. The king who's brought you the best of times. When he dies, what happens to all the people? They, they roll right into fear and anxiety and uncertainty. What's gonna happen to us, right? That's going on here. It's fear and uncertainty because the Assyrians are in power and they wanna dominate the entire region. They have already um, dominated the northern kingdom, Israel, their power is in the east of this map and they want to rule the entire Fertile Crescent. Do you know why they want to rule the entire Fertile Crescent? It's fertile. Who said it? <laughs> Boom. Thank you, Mike. It's fertile. Everybody wants to rule the Fertile Crescent. And so the Assyrians are pressing in on them. But in the day of prosperity, as I said, the people of God don't need God and they become complacent. And that's why God raised up guys like Amos and Hosea who bring a warning message to these same people that goes completely ignored. The days of prosperity are coming to an end and the people know it. This was and is a pivotal time, a pivotal moment in time for the people of God. I say was and is. The Assyrians are growing in power in the east. They've already conquered the north. Now they're threatening the south. And when Ahaz comes to throne, he's terrified. He's a target. The southern kingdom is a target. So when Isaiah will step in and he will say to him things like, don't join the Assyrians, because that's a temptation for Ahaz, and don't become one of the Assyrians, or don't become, don't, don't join them and don't be anti-Assyrian. He points to them, you have forgotten you belong to God. God is your king. It's not join the Assyrians and be saved. It's not reject the Assyrians and be saved. The message of Isaiah is that the people forgot the Lord saves Your salvation will not come from your human means of power. It won't come from your political maneuvering. It won't come from the Republicans or the Democrats or the Libertarians. The Lord saves. Your hope is in God alone. That's what chapters 1 through 39 is all about. And look forward to digging in there. We move forward, 605 to 539 BC are the days of exile. These are the worst of times. These are chapters 40 through 55. Babylon now has come to power. The theme, the big theme is the servant king. Think of the book of Daniel. In 586, Jerusalem was destroyed. The people were carried away to a foreign land. Many of the people had come to think faith in God is pointless. You see, we have pushed him away. 
We have marginalized, we have distanced ourselves from him. We have turned to other gods. And now look, he let us be attacked. Faith in God is pointless. Talk about relevance. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Some of you think that You've pushed God away, you've marginalized him, you keep him at a distance, and now you've fallen on hard times and you think, yep, just what I thought. God hasn't done anything for me. Why bother serving him? Others here in Judah and Jerusalem think God is real, but he's abandoned us, so we will turn to the Babylonian gods. Maybe they can save us. In chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah says to them, God hasn't abandoned you, he's chosen you, and he will show himself to rule and reign over the Babylonians. He will topple their little idols. He will redeem his people from their sin. He will bring them back home. Trust in God, the Lord saves. He's your servant king. 539 to 500 BC, these are the chapters 56 through 66, and this is the days of return. All right, so think, right? Nehemiah, Ezra, right? Cyrus is raised up. Send the people. He's allowing the people. This is, this is amazing. The people can return to Jerusalem. 539, Cyrus comes to power. That's a Persian. Persia's in power, the victorious king, and he allows all God's people to return to Jerusalem, rebuild. Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Malachi. The people become careless. They, they, they become just religiously devoted with no sense of relationship with God. Lots of religious activity, but distant from the Lord. And you've got these four kings that are of Judah that are listed and who will lead the people of God to God? Will they lead the people of God to God or will they lead the people of God away from God? Will they lead the people of God deeper into their trust of God? Or will they lead the people to bail on God and create man-made strategies of salvation? Ahaz, for example, refuses. He will refuse to turn to the Lord. Instead, he will turn to human means of salvation, human securities, Trinity. We must decide what will we do with this book. Individually and corporately, we've got to answer some questions about the contents of this book. Number five, why? Why Isaiah? Well, the theme, as I said, is God-centered. The three chunks that I just pointed us to. Messiah is king. He's a holy king. He's a servant king. He's a victorious king. And these kings, all four of them, will fail in some way to be holy, serving the people, and victorious. But the point of Isaiah is to point us that there is another king who is to come. And he, this king, will be perfect in his holiness, extravagant in his serving of those who live in his kingdom, and completely victorious over our greatest enemy, which is sin and death. 
Isaiah is a God-centered way of thinking, worshiping, doing. Hear me closely. It's written to ask us head questions. What will we believe? It will call on us to decide something about God. And because it does, it is to build, it's the intent of the, of the book, it's to build convictions about God. Who is God in the best of times? Who is God in the worst of times? What do you believe about him? Can he be trusted? Is he sovereign? Is he in control when nations come in and destroy and carry the people off to a foreign land? There will be difficult questions posed before us. The people of God are in a theological crisis. What do we believe about God in the worst of times? Is God sovereign when a godless nation attacks a God's people? What is the future of the once great Davidic monarchy? Like, isn't that, isn't there something supposed to happen from that line? It's falling apart here in Isaiah. Will God be faithful? Is the monarchy over? It looks to be over. And so Isaiah comes in and it's an urgent book. Where will we turn? Who will we or what will we hold on to? Let me put it this way. Will, will your leaders, will your pastors, your elders, will your community, community group leaders, will the ministry leaders here at Trinity, will the heads of the households, will the fathers, will the moms, Will you put a stake in the ground and say, we must trust in our God in the best of times and in the worst of times? Will we, the people of Trinity Community Church, men, women, and children, will we trust in the Lord or will we turn to our man-made schemes as our salvation? Their day, our day, is a moment of truth for the one who says, I believe in God. It's a moment of truth. Can we trust the Lord even in our suffering? As the armies gather in the east and they invade and conquer, can we trust the Lord as the cries from the culture demand to silence you? Tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two. That's what being the man of God brought him. That's what the proclamation, the Lord saves, got him in this life. We are to consider head questions, convictions. What do we believe about our God? What do we think about God? And all of that, what will we believe? Head questions. What do we believe about this king? It's written to ask us heart questions. Who are we to worship? Isaiah calls us to repent of our idolatry and worship the one true God. Will the idols of the age then and now, will they prove to be stronger than God? Will they prove to be more trustworthy? Will, will these false gods of our day, will they deliver you? How's it working out for us? Are they bringing deliverance to you? Or is God a saving God? Does the Lord still save in our day? Where do we find hope for salvation in this very messed up world? 
Who will we turn to? What will we treasure in? Who will we devote ourselves to? Who will we worship in the best of times and in the worst of times? It's written to stir stir our hearts. It's written to stir our affections, our worship of the great king. Third, it's written to ask hand questions. What are, I, what are you and what am I going to do with this book? Head, heart, and hand. Isaiah calls us off the couch of lazy Christianity and into the radical adventure of serving Christ with reckless abandonment. Isaiah calls us out of our comforts. It calls us to repent of taking the road of least resistance and to pursue Christ with our very last breath for his glory. Isaiah is practical theology. Who God is affects how we will then live. Practical living, life issues, So what is the role of God's people living in this world? If God is sovereign and he's faithful and trustworthy, if he is savior, what does he call us to do and be in this world? Isaiah is gonna address that. Trinity, God will be doing all three, I pray. This is my prayer. All three in all of us, head, heart, and hand. God is saying to us in Isaiah, I'm better than you think. And God is saying to us in Isaiah, you're worse than you think. Let's get together. He was a baby born in Kentucky. He became a self-educated statesman who later became a self-educated lawyer, who later became a self-educated congressman, who later became the 16th president of the United States of America. He led us into a bloody civil war. In so doing, he preserved the union and abolished slavery. The war now over, much work needed to be done. So much division lived in our young nation. Blacks were free from slavery, but far from free from mistreatment. But things were progressing for us as a nation. His Gettysburg Address, epic. His Emancipation Proclamation, bold and clear. He pushed Congress to action which brought about the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, making slavery a crime. He was hard at work seeking to restore our divided nation. He was and is considered one of the greatest presidents this country has ever had. It was a time in history of our nation that we might think of as the worst of times. But hope was on the horizon because Lincoln could lead us into the best of times. He was reelected November 1864, six months after his election on Good Friday, April 14, 1865. A local actor and Confederate sympathizer walked into Ford's theater and shot President Lincoln in the back of the head. 
John Wilkes Booth shot the president. About nine hours later, President Lincoln was pronounced dead in the Peterson house across the street from the theater. Three hours after that, Andrew Johnson was sworn in as the 17th president of the United States. Uncertainty about the future. Can you imagine living? Uncertainty about the future hung in the balance. Our king of sorts, our president, lie dead in the Peterson house. Fear gripped political parties. What's going to be next? And, well, they were afraid for their own lives as well. Where would this nation go from here? How will it recover? And what will all this mean to all those freed slaves? A few thousand years prior to Lincoln's death, on that fateful Friday, there was another Friday. Amazingly, the King of Kings hung on a wooden cross. He had already been bludgeoned to near death. They crafted a crown of thorns as a means of mockery and a tool of shame and pain, and they mercilessly pressed it into his brow. Those he had created and given life and breath to were now seeking to take his. Those he had shown mercy were now showing him no mercy. Those who had professed faith in God now denied God and mocked him. And the crowd cried out, crucify him. The soldiers and the people who mocked him and all the sinners throughout all time nailed him to the cross. They crucified the holy, servant, victorious king. Not only did they crucify Jesus, church, my sins, your sins, nailed Jesus to the cross. He died because you and I are sinners in need of salvation. We crucified our Lord. The created thing crucified his, her creator. He bled and died. And all of creation gasped. It was the worst of times. Jesus Christ, King of Kings, had been crucified. The disciples were thrown into fear and despair. They hid for their lives. All hope in a Messiah had been completely dashed at that bloody display. Will we be next? The disciples cowered as they hid for their lives and hid in shame. Christ laid still in the grave. But then, unbeknownst to his disciples, Friday had passed, Saturday had come and gone. And at some point on the third day, there was a stirring in the tomb. Grave clothes began to rustle. 
Imagine with me that very moment as the grave clothes begin to ruffle a bit. The body that lay underneath those strips of cloth begins to breathe. Life returns to that lifeless body. The dusty, dirty, cold tomb begins, the dust begins to stir in that atmosphere. And then there has to be that moment, that one moment when he sat up and the stone begins to to move and just the, the sound of that stone in that moment as it opens the grave. It had been the worst of times, but it was now the best of times. And while Isaiah writes in this day of uncertainty, he writes to calm their fears and to say, trust in the Lord. And as Isaiah writes to us in our day, he writes to calm our fears, to say, trust in the Lord. He writes to tell them, the king. We're not talking about Uzziah and Ahaz and Hezekiah and Jotham. No, the king is coming. He writes to tell them this. The Messiah, the king of all kings, is coming. Rest assured, people of God, put your faith in him in your uncertain day. Put your faith in him in the midst of your fears, in the worst of times, in the best of times. Isaiah's ministry was to help them to look forward to a coming king. Isaiah's ministry to us is to help us to look backward to the king who came and then forward to the king who will again return for his bride. He will most assuredly, church, return for his bride. And in so doing, we are to be at peace in the midst of the troubling days, in the midst of the challenges in which we live. We're to be full of faith. We're to be found worshiping heart. We're to be filled with what do we believe? Conviction. We're to be filled active, actively doing as we wait for the return of our King. Serving our Savior, Messiah King, unwavering, who came and he will come again. That's why we're preaching Isaiah. Let's stand together.